Well, if you're not there already, you can turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 26. Begins on page 175 in the church Bible. And if you're visiting with us, we work our way typically through books of the Bible. We start at the beginning of one book and take verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter until we get to the end of that book. And so you have kind of dropped in in the middle of a conversation here uh, that we've been going through the book of Leviticus and then once we finish Leviticus, Lord willing, we'll go back to the gospel of John and uh, pick up where we left off over there and finish up the gospel of John. But for this morning, we're in Leviticus chapter 26. We believe this is God's holy ancient word. And I am going to read, not the entire chapter, although I will as we work through our exposition, but I am going to begin reading in verse 5. So Leviticus chapter 26, in verse 5, he says, Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering, and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live in security in your land. I shall also give you peace in the land so that you may lie down, with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate wild beasts from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. But you will pursue your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will pursue one hundred, and one hundred of you will pursue ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. And you will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not loathe you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. This is God's ancient holy word. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we approach these ancient words with trembling because we believe what your servant Paul said, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And so we want to carefully understand what your word says has said and what it meant to that original audience and also what it means for us today as new covenant Christians. So Lord, we ask for your help as you teach us and instruct us from your holy word. Give us humble hearts to tremble and be contrite of spirit before your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Leviticus chapter 26 is dripping with blood. It's dripping with blood because it's been butchered out of its context so many times. No doubt many a prosperity preacher camps out on verses especially 4 through 13 and waxes eloquent about the prosperity that is promised to you if you just claim it in the Lord. Your gardens will be abundant. Your paychecks will be fat. You will prosper greatly if you just believe. And make sure when that offering plate goes by, you sow a seed which the Lord will return a hundredfold. Thus says the prosperity preacher. But there also can be a kind of prosperity light that walks amongst evangelicals. A kind of, uh, well, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11. For you know the plans that I have for you. Plans to prosper you. Plans for peace and not calamity to give you a future and a hope. Or, everybody's favorite when it comes to the United States of America, 2 Chronicles 7, 14 
and my people who are called by my name, if they humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will listen from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. These are great verses. But often, I think, misapplied. Butchered out of their context. Now, before you throw away your t-shirt that has Jeremiah 29 11 on it you just have to wait to the end of the message to see and understand exactly how it applies but these were written these are ancient words written in a specific context to God's ancient Hebrews the ancient Israelites and we need to go back to Mount Sinai to rightly understand them so that we can rightly and properly understand and apply it to the city of Youngstown in our day in 2023. And so, that takes work. So let me refresh your memory in taking you back. This ancient text was given by God through Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai. Okay, just after God had plucked the Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt and he had brought them through those amazing, miraculous, supernatural plagues out of Egypt and now they're in the desert and God is entering into a covenant relationship with his people, a binding agreement. And, and so that, again, is very important to understand, a covenant. It's not a word that we often use in everyday language but ancient covenants and this is an ancient covenant ancient covenant had various characteristics to them there had to be the parties involved a relationship involved usually between a king and certain subjects okay so it was a covenant relationship there was often a mediator in that covenant there was often bloody ceremony involved in that covenant. Also part of that covenant had stipulations or obligations. You do this and this will happen. You don't do this and this will happen. And often the this will happen or this will not happen is often packaged in blessings and cursings. Blessings being the happy stuff Cursings being the frightening, terrifying kinds of stuff. We see another kind of example of this, a, a kind of parallel passage, is in the, the, the end of Deuteronomy, De Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, where there's cursings and there's blessings. And this is what we have here. We have stipulations of the covenant that are given, and then there's also promised blessings if you abide by these stipulations and then there's an abundance of cursings as well. And so these were ancient, this was an ancient covenant for God's people, the Hebrews, okay? And so it was given at a specific time and it was, we're going to see it's, it's very much related to the land. And that shouldn't be a shocker because chapter 25 was all about the land and giving the land rest and the kind of uh, resetting of the land with the year of Jubilee. And so here are some of the both blessings and cursings related to the land that hinge upon Israel's faithfulness to the covenant. And I think with this we're going to see God in very bright colors, we're going to see the kindness of God and the severity of God so that you would respond with faithfulness to the Lord, okay? So we only have two points this morning. So let's first of all behold the kindness of God. And we see the kindness of God, but first we need to look at the stipulations of the covenant in verse 1 and 2. You shall... Verse 1, you shall not make for yourself idols, nor shall you set up for yourself a graven image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a carved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am Yahweh your God. So at the beginning of this chapter, he lays down the, a, a kind of uh, these first two verses 
carry the summary statements of God's standard of stipulations. And we can see parallels with certainly the first two commandments, maybe the first four commandments where God is saying, I want you to be faithful to me and abiding by my standards. And, and it's interesting as he gives the prohibition against the idols, he doesn't just say idols. He says, nor set up for yourselves graven images or sacred pillars or carved stones. In other words, he's going through the litany of the different examples of the idolatries of the different pagans that would surround the Hebrews that were going to be living in that promised land. Right now, they're not in the promised land, but they will be some 40 years later. And so he says, do not give yourselves to idolatry. Because again, this is a covenant relationship, much like a marriage. When you are standing before an audience with a preacher, pastor, officiating, and a husband and wife are standing, they're making certain promises to one another. Forsaking all others, being devoted to you. That's a covenant, okay? In a similar way, God is calling the Hebrews into covenant with him, forsaking all others, forsaking all these other gods to be devoted wholly to him. It's no accident that God often likens himself to a husband and his people to his bride. Because the marriage is a a covenant. And then also in verse 2, you shall keep my Sabbath. And fear my sanctuary, for I am Yahweh. Here, this summons to keep God's Sabbath. And we've been talking lots about Sabbaths, right? And again, notice the plural. It wasn't the Sabbath, that weekly Sabbath merely. It was the Sabbath. You had not only the weekly Sabbath, you had the seven different annual feasts that also had a Sabbath element to them. You also had the, the, the year of Sabbath every seven years which you would give the land rest and then you had the 50 year Sabbath the year of Jubilee where the land had to get a an extra year of rest there was all kinds of different Sabbaths and gods and this was part of the sign of the covenant because covenants that was another thing about covenants ancient covenants would usually have some kind of sign some kind of picture that that identify that you are part of the covenant and this was Israel's sign namely that on the seventh day of the week they did not work nor their servants nor any other animals also uh, every seven years there was the I mean can you imagine that not not planting in an agricultural society not planting on that seventh year and this would have been radically different and so you know if uh, your pagan neighbor tried to uh, do some trading on the Sabbath, they would have to say, no, we don't do that on the Sabbath. We are, we are obligated to Yahweh. But also to fear the sanctuary, the dwelling place of God. In this context, it was the tabernacle. Later on, it would be the temple, right? There was to be a fearing, a reverence of approaching the very presence of God in the sanctuary. And we saw it. I mean, you know, Leviticus is full of all these regulations and there's really only two narratives in the book of Leviticus, one in chapter 10 and one in chapter 24. And both of them include people dying. Dying because they're not fearing the Lord. They're not revering His sanctuary. And then verse 3. Verse 3, he says, You shall walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to do them. So this is, these first three verses are the stipulations. And then here's the, the promise, the promise that highlights God's kindness. It begins in verse 4. We can call verse 4 and 5 the prosperity Verse 4, then I shall give you rains in their season, so that the land will give forth its produce, and the trees of the field will give forth their fruit. Indeed, you will, your threshing will last you until grape gathering, and your grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in the land. You see what God's saying here? If you 
are faithful to me, I will make your crops abound. You will have bumper harvests, right? You'll have double crops. And, and these crops will last you well into even over to, to, to sowing seeds the next season. You will have an overabundance of stuff. This is what God was promising to his people. And there's echoes here. Echoes that go back to another time of prosperity. Before the land, the ground had become cursed. The land we know as Eden. Where there was an abundant harvest. There was trees just burgeoning with fruit. But God also promises productivity in verse... I'm sorry, protection in verses 6 through 8. Notice what he says here. I shall give you peace, shalom in the land, so that you may lie down and no one will make you tremble. I shall also eliminate wild beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land, but you will pursue your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. And five of you will pursue 100 and and 100 of you will pursue 10,000 and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. God is promising peace here. He's also promising protection. Protection from the wild beasts of the land. From bears that might come and maul you. From lions that may come and devour you. From wolves that may come and kill your children. God's promising protection. But not only the wild beasts of the animal world, the wild beasts of the enemies that surrounded Israel. And notice here he's, he's saying, you're going to be like John Rambo. You're going to be a one-man fighting crew here. He says that in verse 7, you're, you will pursue your enemies, they will fall before you. Five of you will pursue a hundred. But it's not because you're that sweet like John Rambo. It's because the Lord is making them afraid of you. He's protecting you. And a hundred of you will pursue 10,000. And again, think this ancient real estate of Israel. It's fascinating because it's a, it's a small strip of land that was, is between two large continents that was often a kind of pathway between great empires, right? You know, empires on the, this great land in Asia and empires in Africa. And so, you know, sometimes when the Egyptians were strong, they might just wa- try to take some land up north on the northern continent of Asia and they would always have to pass through this ancient land. So it... it, it could easily become a land that would become a kind of ping pong ball between empires. And so there was this constant seduction for the Hebrews throughout their history to try to align themselves with one of these larger pagan empires and God would regularly say, no, don't do that. I will protect you. You just be faithful to me. He promises protection. Protection, whether we no fear, the animals will not attack you, but again, there will be a kind of dominion over the creation. Again, it's kind of echoes of Eden here. And also there would be productivity in verses 9 and 10. So I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you. I will confirm my covenant with you. And you will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. God's saying, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. Babies. Lots of babies. God is promising. He's promising fertility and 
productivity not only amongst the, the, these families, but also their harvest. Again, this is this similar prosperity that we saw earlier where you, you just, you know, you have so much food, you know, anything that looks even slightly old, you're throwing it out because you, you have such an abundance of the new stuff. And again, didn't God say something in Eden? Be fruitful and multiply. And then the coup de grace that God gives and promises. He promises his very self in their midst. Leviticus 26, 11 through 13, moreover, I will make my dwelling among you. And my soul will not loathe you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. I am Yahweh your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Here God is promising that he will dwell in their midst. That he will tabernacle among them. That he will dwell in their midst in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple. That he will be their God and they will be his people and they will be in a kind of marital union with him. And again, you can't help but thinking as he says he would walk in their midst. Hmm. In that first volume of Torah... Way back in Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, remember when they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of Yahweh walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh in the midst of the trees of the garden. So it was in that ancient garden with all of its productivity and all of its prosperity and all of its peace and protection. There's no sin. There's no rebellion. There's no wild animals attacking. There's no fighting and bickering going on there. There's no death. There's no disease. There's no dying in there. And it's therein that Yahweh dwelt with our ancient foreparents in that garden. And so here... Years later, God is giving something of a similar promise. I will dwell in your midst, and it will be a lush land with tremendous productivity and prosperity and peace and protection. You will experience true shalom. One commentator, last name Shepherd. It's a great name for a commentator. He says... If the Israelites obey the Lord's commandments, they will enjoy the blessings of the land. The Lord will walk walk among them. This is both the essence of the Lord's promises in the Mosaic Covenant as well as an indication of the recovery of the blessings of Eden where the Lord apparently walked in the garden with its first inhabitants. These verses also recall the blessings promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. We say we look at a passage like this, and okay, so here's this. Again, you can see this. You can see at first glance how certain prosperity preachers might look at this and say, you know, Matt, if you're faithful to the Lord, your garden will look a lot better than your neighbor's. You just need to claim it. But you see, friends, when you read the trajectory of Scripture and see this is a kind of Edenic blessing that's being promised here. When we get to the new covenant, we see that there is another Eden. But it's not in this world. There's another land of prosperity There's another land wherein Yahweh walks amongst his people. There's another land where the lion lies down with the lamb. 
There's another land where you do not have to have ring cameras all over your house, suspicious of anybody walking by, and firearms stocked up to protect yourself and your family. Because it's a land wherein righteousness dwells. It's a land of protection. Revelation chapter 21 speaks of the new Jerusalem. And it says, And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be closed by day, for there will be no night there. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. It says the gates are open all night long. Well, why would you have gates open? Because it's better than Mayberry. Because there's no thieves walking around. Why do you have keys? You know, I mean, do you ever look at your key ring and see how many keys you have on there? Because we live in a fallen world with thieves who break in and steal. But God promises an Edenic land where there is You can keep your doors unlocked. The gates are open. And prosperity in the presence of Yahweh in Revelation 22, 1 to 5. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. A tree of life. In the midst of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, wherein it's a different kind of fruit every month. Tremendous abundance and prosperity. And its leaves are for the healing of the nations. There's no more sickness, no more disease. Verse 3, and there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and His slaves will serve Him and they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will not have any need of the light of the lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. The promise of God being with His people It's Eden restored. So my friends, the prosperity preachers are correct about the promise of prosperity. It's just their timing is wrong. It's an over-realized eschatology. The promised abundance and prosperity is not for this life, but we live in a world of suffering. We live in a world where we're not promised to evade suffering here and now. Some of you deal with chronic pain. Some of you need to stand up right now because your back hurts. And you can. I won't judge you. We live in a world where doctors report of a prognosis six months to live we live in a world in which young parents have to explain to their children that they're going to die or in other instances where goodbyes are not possible because life is snatched immediately we live in a world where people murder one another But God promises a world which will not be the case. Revelation 21, 3 and 4, and a loud voice from the throne was saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be their God, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed you see my friends 
Israel did not abide by the stipulations of the covenant. They never got to experience a kind of Edenic living on earth. Their history is tragically marked by rebellion, idolatry. And so they also needed to be warned of the severity of God. But before we move on, for new covenant Christians, my friend, take courage that this world as we know it is not how it will always be. God will clean it up. And you can live for that world. Jesus said, do not lay up treasure here on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but rather lay up treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, nor do thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your heart this morning, child of God? Is it here? Or is it in the world to come? But not only do we see the kindness of God, secondly, behold the severity of God. Notice verse 14 through the end of this chapter, really, all the way down to probably verse 40. But if you do not obey my voice, if you do not obey me, and do not do all these commandments, instead you reject my statutes, and if your soul loathes my judgments so as not to do all my commandments and so break my covenant, in turn, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you sudden tear, consumption, and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. God promises mega death. Mega death as a consequence of rebelling against him. And again, is this not what we hear just outside of Eden when God is speaking to Adam and Eve when he gets to Adam and speaks of the curse for his rebellion? He tells him that till you return, he says, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread in Genesis 3.19 till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. God promised the curse of death because of Adam and Eve's rebellion. And this is what God is promising to the ancient Hebrews. Verse 17, and I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated before your enemies. And those who hate you will have dominion over you and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. I also, after these things, if you do not obey me, then I will discipline you seven times more for your sins. Herein, God is promising your enemies will have dominion over you. Remember the command in the garden? Exercise dominion over the creation. Now God says, no, you will be the slave. You will be the slave of your enemies. And herein, God says, notice in verse 18, and we're going to see this repeated throughout, God is saying, you will be disciplined seven times. And, and that's important because if you think through the book of Leviticus, how many seven times ceremonial, ritual kinds of things take place? There was sevenfold things that were involved in the cleansing of the leper. There was sevenfold things involving in the ordination of the priest. There was all kinds of sevenfold kinds of things. Well, here in God is saying almost in a ritualistic kind of way, I'm going to sevenfold bring the hammer of judgment upon you. And again... We see God promising the Hebrews enmity, enmity between their neighbors, hostility, violence, wars, and that's what we see over and over in the history of Israel, right? I mean, it just seems like war after war, right? And friends, this is what God said when he, again, if we, if we had our ear cup just outside of Eden, we would hear him saying, 
to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, between the serpent and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. God's saying that there's going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And immediately, we re- if you keep reading in the Genesis account, it's in Genesis chapter 4, that you begin to immediately see that hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent when Cain picks up a knife and he slits the throat of his brother Abel. And really, you can read the rest of the history uh, uh, throughout the Old Testament and it's constant conflict where the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent go head to head in violence and warfare. Verse 19. I will also break down your pride of strength and I will give your, de- give your sky over to become like iron and your earth like bronze. And your power will be spent uselessly for your land will not give forth its produce and the trees of the land will not give forth their fruit. Then if you walk in hostility against me and are, obey, and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. So here again, God's saying he's going to shut up. The, the heaven, is, the sky is going to be like iron and the earth like bronze. I mean, early May, we had a lot of rain. It's been like a week, right, since we have had rain. And look at the ground. It's hard. I was at the ball field yesterday. Kids are kicking up dirt with their bats, and dust is just flying in the air. You can look at your vehicle. There's a, there's a layer of dust all over it just for a week of it being no rain. God says, I I will make the ground like bronze. I will shut up the heavens. It will not rain. So that, what's the result? The land doesn't produce. And again, isn't this, again, you go back, ear cupped outside of Eden. God is speaking to Adam in Genesis 3.17 and says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. We haven't had much rain, but you notice the weeds are still growing. (laughs) They just. Seem to even not even need rain, right? And they just overtake your garden. Verse 22. And I will send out among the beasts, I will send out among you the beasts of the field which will bereave you of your children and cut down your cattle and reduce your numbers so that you so that your roads may lie desolate. Verse 23, And if by these things you do not accept my discipline, but walk in hostility against me, then I will walk in hostility against you, and I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. And again, cupping our ear, listening to the voice of God in Eden. In 3.16, he said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain and conception. In pain you will bear children. Part of the curse with childbearing is the reality of children dying. Infertility. Not the abundance that we see promised in verses 3 through 13 of this chapter. Even animals devouring your children. And again, with each of these, in fact, some people, 
some scholars have looked at this ancient text and said, well, it must be written like many years later than when Moses was around because it's almost a tracing of the history of Israel, the famines, the times of judgment, the wars, the hostility. In fact, we see specific examples of this. Remember that passage in 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 23? And they went up there to Bethel, and as he was going by, so this is Elisha, not Elijah. Elisha, those are hard to keep separate. This is Elisha, the successor. And some young people, some young boys came out of the city and mocked him. Go up, you bald head. You bald head. Throughout the book of Kings, the way in which the people relate to the prophets was the way in which they were relating to Yahweh. And here these young people are mocking the prophet of Yahweh. And notice what Elisha does. He cursed them in the name of Yahweh. And then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. I didn't know that was in the Bible. It's there. It's not going to make the flannel graph, but it's there. And again, this is part of God's cursing. And it also says in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 25, now it happened at the beginning of their settlement there that they did not fear Yahweh. Therefore, Yahweh sent lions among them which were killing them. And, and, and by the way, in this chapter, we, we see this happen throughout Israel's history, and there's almost like a progression, a progression where it goes from bad to worse, bad to worse, and Israel just keeps stiffening their neck and hardening their heart. And all of this is God calling them back to Him, back to repent. And there's only but flickers here and there, like during the days of Josiah and during the days of Hezekiah, but, back, but, but they were just, they were very short-lived times of repentance, Verse 25, back to Leviticus 26. I will also bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather into your cities, I will send pestilence among you so that you will be given over into the hand of your enemies. When I break your staff of bread, ten women will will bake your bread in one oven and they will bring back your bread by rationed weight so that you will eat it and not become full. In other words, there's going to be ten women baking but there's just this tiny little loaf and you get your tiny little slice and you eat that tiny little slice and your belly is still crying out for food verse 27 yet if in spite of this you do not obey me but walk in hostility against me then I will walk in wrathful hostility against you and I even I will discipline you again seven times for your sins Verse 29, as if it couldn't get any worse. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. It's going to get so bad. You're going to be so hungry that you will cannibalistically devour even your own children. You said, this didn't really happen, did it? It did. Second Kings chapter 6 and verse 26. As the king in the north was passing along the wall, a woman cried out saying to him, Save my lord, O king. And he said, If Yahweh does not save you, from where shall I save you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king said to her, What is the matter with you? And she said, This woman said to me, Give me Give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him. 
but she has hidden her son. This woman brings a dispute to the king that we were supposed to eat both of our children and, I, and, and, and we ate my child, but she's not giving her child up. He said, my goodness. It's like hell on earth. And again, friends, you, is this that far-fetched? In a world where we butcher our babies? In a world where we sell their body parts? Verse 30. Then I will destroy the high. And again, remember, this is the opposite of Eden, right? And this is part of the promise. In pain you will bear children. What could be more vile and dark than eating your own children. Verse 30, then I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and give your corpses to lie on the corpses of your idols for my soul shall loathe you and I will give you your cities over as a waste and make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your soothing aromas. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who inhabit it will themselves feel desolate because of it. What God is saying here, I will bury you. I will bury you with your idols. You wanted your idols so much, you can take them to the grave with you. Verse 33, you, however, I will scatter among the nations and I will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Then the land will make up for its Sabbaths all these days of the desolation and you will be in your enemy's land and the land, which, and the land will rest and make up for its Sabbaths all the days of its desolation. It will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living in it. As for those of you who may remain, I will also bring weakness to the, into their hearts in the land of, your, of their enemies and the sound of a driven leaf will pursue them. And even when no one is pursuing, they will flee as, as though from the sword and they will fall. And they will therefore stumble over each other as if running from the sword, although no one is pursuing. And you will have no strength to stand up before your enemies. God's saying, you're going to be so fearful. There's going to be some serious PTSD. You will hear a leaf and you will run because you're so afraid. Verse 38 but you will perish among the nations and your enemy's land will consume you. So those of you who remain will not rot, uh, will rot away in their iniquity in the lands of your enemies and also in the iniquities of their fathers, they will rot away. What's going on here? God is saying, like he promised, remember in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 19, Leviticus 20, God said to them, I'm vomiting out these pagans who are in this promised land before you because of all their sexual immoralities and their perversions and their sacrificing their children to Moloch. But be warned, if you do the same thing, I will vomit you out of the land. I will drive you out of the land and I will make it rest. Those times that you were supposed to let the land rest every seven years, I will make sure it gets its rest. Nobody will be there because you will be off in a pagan land. Friends, that's exactly what God did. Three dates. 740 B.C. The tribes in the north taunting Yahweh with their infidelities and all their idolatries. The Assyrians came and the Assyrians were notorious for their terroristic tactics of gruesome war crimes and they came and crushed the north and took many of the nobles into captivity. 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar and three waves came and crushed the tribes of the south, Judah, and brought into captivity many of the nobles, and even destroyed the temple, stealing all the sacred vessels in the temple and took them back to Babylon. Eventually they come back to the land. 
but in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the disciples were walking along and looking and gazing at the Herodian temple with awe and wonder and said, look at this beautiful temple. Jesus says, you see that temple there? There will not be one stone sitting upon another. Sure enough, 40 years, some 40 years later, 70 A.D., a power-hungry, bloodthirsty general by the name of Titus Vespasian came under the leadership of the Roman Empire and crushed Jerusalem. And over and over, this was God saying, this is what's going to happen. And just like your foreparents were driven from Eden and had to be scattered out of Eden, so I will drive you from the promised land with my boot if you do not repent and turn back towards me. You may hear a passage like this and say, Matt, this is awful. This is horrible. My friend, it gets worse. If you think, well, this is the God of the Old Testament, but the God of the New Testament, well, he's, you know, he's the kinder, nicer one. You clearly have not read the Bible carefully. Jesus, yes, the Lord Jesus himself, who is that gentle lamb who laid down his life on behalf of sinners, he speaks in, in, in Luke chapter 16 uh, of the rich man and Lazarus. And there the rich man is in Hades in torment and he's begging for but a drop of water to be brought by the poor man coming across from the place of paradise into the place of, ter- into the place of torment to be put on his lips. And it will not happen. It is the close associate of the Lord Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul, or Apostle John in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, who says, and the devil who deceived them shall be cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet is also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation chapter 21 verse 8, but for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And the language that we get of the lake of fire is the language of being outside of Eden. When you get to Revelation chapter 22 God says, outside are the dogs. Outside are the sexually immoral. They're outside of that future promised Eden. And they're there forever in the lake of fire where there's no prosperity. There's only death, the second death. There's no peace. So that's the severity of God. But notice this call in verse 40, back to Leviticus 26. God does say, if they, if they confess the iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers. And this is the way we do flickering times throughout Israel's history. You see Daniel, for instance, confessing his iniquity, but also the iniquity of their fathers. We see this during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah confessing their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and and, in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me and also how they walked in hostility against me. I also was walking in hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemy or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they make up for their iniquity. 
Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And I will remember also my covenant with Isaac. My covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land. For the land will be forsaken by them. And will make up for its Sabbath. While it was made desolate without them. They meanwhile will be making up for the iniquity. Because they rejected my judgments. And their soul loathed my statutes. Yet in spite of all this. When they are in the land of their enemies. I will not reject them. Nor will I so loathe them so as to bring them to the land, breaking my covenant with them. For I am Yahweh their God, verse 45, but I will remember them, remember for them the covenant with their ancestors who I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I may be their God, I am Yahweh. And then Moses concludes, these are the statutes and judgments and laws which Yahweh has given between himself and the sons of Israel by the hand of Moses at Mount Sinai. So God says, if they would but humble themselves, confess their sins and turn back towards me. And my friends, is this not also the summon of the New Testament? Coming to God, confessing your sin, humbling yourself. But you say, how could one go from exile outside of Eden, damned to hell, all the way to eternal life in heaven, the promised new Eden. Well, the new covenant makes that clear. The mediator of the new covenant. Listen to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law, as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. The Apostle Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy 27-28. Remember I said Deuteronomy 27-28 is parallel to Leviticus chapter 26. In that section it says, if you don't do everything that God says in the law, these curses are for you. And so if you're going to try to abide by that and say, I'm going to try to get to the new Eden if I just can muster up enough obedience for God. Paul says, you're damned. The curse of the law hangs over you. This is what you deserve outside of the camp. Death, disease. Verse 10, Galatians 3. Now that no, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. He who does them shall live by them. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We say, what's going on here? God is saying, you know those curses of the covenant? Death, disease, outside of my presence, not walking with me. Christ bore the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That when he was suspended between heaven and earth, bearing in his body the full throttle of the judgment of God and bearing that punishment of hell upon himself he was taking the curse of the law he was bearing the curse so that if anybody believes in him can have the promise of the future Eden so my friend I urge you this morning if you have not yet laid hold of Christ as the mediator of the new covenant as the one who bore your curse that you deserve, the hell that you deserve, fly to him. He died upon that Roman cross to bear your sin. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6, it says, We all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. 
The curse of the, law, of the law was meted out upon the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's hill. He is our mediator. He is our substitute. And child of God, if he is your substitute, humble yourself before him. Be wholly devoted to him. Yes, you will not be devoted to him perfectly. Just as in the marriage union today, we are not devoted perfectly in loving our spouse as we ought to. But may there be no competitors because we are devoted to him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this ancient text and all of its gruesomeness and severity because it is a revelation of who you are. And Lord, may we subject ourselves to you. And while on the one hand these ancient land promises may not have specific direct application, Lord, as we read the rest of the story, they truly do. And so Lord, help us to see that and to respond appropriately for your glory, amen.